How can you believe that a God of love would send people to a lost eternity, would send people to hell, assuming that there is such a place as hell? Surely a God of love is all about mercy and forgiveness. That concept of hell might fit with, you know, the God of the Old Testament, but surely not with Jesus. All that vengeful stuff about wrath and judgment, no, that's been replaced with Jesus' message of love and acceptance. And anyway, how could a God of love send to hell people who have lived basically good, decent lives, or people of other faiths, or people who have never even heard the name Jesus. How unloving would that be? Indeed, why would God even create hell in the first place? Now, I should point out that what I have just been saying there, you will today not just hear that from atheists. Many liberal Christians and so-called progressive Christians, people like Rob Bell and Richard Rohr, will echo what I have just said. Indeed, Richard Rohr, who is very influential in progressive Christian circles, has said that the doctrine of eternal punishment is a toxic idea from which we need healing. So how are we going to respond to this charge that a God of love would not send people to hell? Now, I appreciate, of course, that this is a difficult subject. It's a difficult subject theologically, but it's also difficult at a personal level. For I guess everybody in this room will know people who died without possessing a saving faith in Jesus Christ. So I have absolutely no wish to approach this in a very cold, callous way. But at the same time, I agree with Tim Keller. Um, it was either Tim Keller or Don Carson, I can't quite remember, who said that we shouldn't find ourselves apologizing for a doctrine that is so clearly taught in Scripture. Because to put your... In, to put yourself in the position of apologizing for hell is actually tantamount to saying, I would have done things differently to the way God did. Therefore, I actually know better than God. As always in this series, I'm going to give a number of points of defense of the historic Christian position before then turning the tables. In other words, seeking to make a roadblock or an obstacle into a signpost 
to true biblical faith. But let me begin by stating that I have no intention of watering down or softening the concept of hell. Hell is described in Scripture as a truly awful fate. God's wrath leaves no room for the concept of a sort of tolerable hell. Also, the Bible speaks of an embodied eternity. So that suggests that hell will be an actual place and not merely a psychological state. And certainly not, despite what again progressive Christianity seeks to tell us, a psychological state of suffering from oppression and injustice which is confined to this life. That's the view you will hear today from progressive Christianity, that hell is what your experience of suffering in this life, but it's nothing to do with eternity. That is not the biblical concept of hell. And I see no biblical warrant for the idea of annihilationism. That is, that after an unbeliever suffers a period of judgment in hell, they cease to exist, that God just blots them out. The experience of hell is presented in the Bible as eternal, as never-ending. Still less can I see any biblical justification for universalism. The idea that in the end, all people, no matter what their beliefs, no matter what they have done in this life, that in the end, they'll all be saved and accepted into God's eternal presence. So hell is the everlasting experience of God's wrath. And it is an eternal reality about which Jesus was evidently not embarrassed to speak. And if Jesus wasn't embarrassed to speak about hell, why should I or why should you be? We shouldn't feel compelled to downplay or apologize for a truth about which God the Father and God the Son are so upfront in warning us of. So to the points then of defense. Number one, the Bible says that God created hell for Satan and the fallen angels. That is, for those who joined the devil in his wicked rebellion against God and God's rule of this universe. In Matthew 25, verse 41, in speaking of hell, Jesus refers to the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is the ultimate destination of the forces of darkness. Revelation 20 verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
It was never God's desire to send man to hell. Had man not sinned, then man would have known nothing of hell. And today, God's desire is that all men everywhere should repent and come to a knowledge of the truth so that they will not spend eternity in hell, but rather on the promised new earth. Number two, to say that a loving God would never send men and women to hell is to seriously underestimate the holiness of God. God is a God of love. Yes, we agree on that. But he is a God of holy love. He is not a one-dimensional God of sentimental love but a God who cannot and will not tolerate sin and evil. His wrath is very real. And the Bible makes it clear that those who do not repent of their sin will be banished from his eternal presence. If God didn't do so, if he just accepted the unrepentant into his eternal home, then heaven would no longer be a place of purity and righteousness, heaven would cease to be heaven. Thus, as the book of Revelation makes explicit, those whose names are not recorded in the Lamb's book of life are excluded. Their fate is to be consigned to a very different eternal habitation, not one of eternal joy and bliss, but one of eternal suffering. And we must expose the view that somehow this is all Old Testament stuff. We must expose it as a, as a lie. After all, Revelation isn't part of the Old Testament, but the last book of the New. Moreover, Jesus himself spoke more about hell than anyone else in the New Testament. And arguably, Jesus spoke more about hell than heaven. Describing hell as a place of eternal torment and echoing the language employed by the Old Testament prophets, the worm dying not, the fire being unquenched. So never ever underestimate the holiness of God. Never delete God's wrath. From his character. My third point is that not only does this objection underestimate the holiness of God, it <clears throat> underestimates the seriousness of sin. In the eyes of a holy God, sin is vile. Sin is more than simply making a bad choice, it is inherently evil. We might describe sin as a foible, a peccadillo, an indiscretion, but God regards sin as wicked and deserving of judgment. A white lie is not white in the sight of God, never mind acts of hatred and greed and selfishness and vindictiveness and betrayal. Offenses like theft and murder are just the upper end of a continuum of sin. But 
all sin is a stain on God's moral universe. And sometimes you'll hear it argued that it is unfair of God to impose an eternal judgment, an eternal sentence of perdition for a time-limited life of sin. But that is again to minimize the seriousness of sin to the sovereign of this universe who is absolute in his holiness and moral purity. A fourth point of defense is that the assertion that a loving God would not send people to hell is based on the fallacy that people are essentially good. Badness is not intrinsic to man's nature, it is argued. Badness is the consequence of man's environment or his lack of education. That is not the biblical position. All men have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, says the Apostle Paul, Romans 3, verse 23. And quoting the Old Testament Psalms, Paul proclaims, there is no one righteous, not even one, Romans 3, verse 10. We are all born with a sin nature, a proclivity towards badness. As I've said before, you don't need to teach a child to sin. It is their natural human condition. Oh sure, man's environment may exacerbate sin, but it is not sin's root cause. Poverty may encourage a man to steal, but you don't need poverty to inculcate covetousness into man's heart. After all, how much fraud is committed by wealthy and well-educated men and women. So bear that in mind when you denounce God for condemning people to hell. We are not talking about innocence. We're talking about an entire race of sinners, each possessing a rebel heart. Even the most noble of people those that we consider to be upstanding citizens on examination will have their moral defects and flaws. Again, I've mentioned this before in a previous talk, but it is interesting to observe that scholars who have examined the history of genocide have been shocked by the ordinariness of many of its perpetrators and of those who chose to support it or to turn a blind eye to it. Think of the ordinary German people who voted en masse for Hitler and the Nazis and who went along with their evil ideology and propaganda. The potential for even dreadful acts of evil is latent in our human nature. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously said, the line dividing good and evil runs through the heart of every human being. It may hurt our pride, our self-esteem, but we are not essentially good. Again, your progressive Christians will tell you you are essentially good. They are wrong biblically. 
Thus, the problem is really not one of God sending good people to hell. The problem is that there are no truly good people. The fifth point of defense is that true justice demands that God punish wrongdoers. Should God turn a blind eye to sin, should he effectively say that in the final analysis, wrongdoers can escape the consequences of their transgressions, then a moral universe would just collapse. There would be no true justice. What then do you say to the many victims of injustice whose oppressors do not face due punishment in this life? Try telling the victims of the Holocaust or the victims of 9-11 that God will not punish men in hell or that he will soften or cut short the duration of their punishment. You cannot have a good God who neglects the rightful cry for justice of those who have suffered at the hands of wrongdoers, the victims of rape, the victims of ethnic cleansing, the victims of murder, the victims of child abuse, the the victims of people trafficking, the victims of racism. A God who overlooked such would fail the victims of injustice. And I say it bluntly and before God, such a God would not warrant your worship. I might add that those who object to God condemning people to hell tend to be those who have not been on the end of terrible injustice those predominantly from the Western world who have led privileged lives with a comfortable standard of living in a relatively secure environment. But those who are less favored, those who have lived at the mercy of abusive rulers, terrorists and foreign oppressors are less likely to have an issue with a good God sending people to hell. Indeed, their grievance is more likely to be, why did a good God not act quicker in judgment? Far from hell negating the goodness of God, hell upholds it. And let me ask you, how do you feel when you read stories And there have been some absolutely shocking ones of late. Of parents or their partners who torture their babies or their children. Even sometimes on to death. And they're either indifferent to their their cries or actually seem to enjoy their sadism. Do you not cry out for justice? You may even have found yourself saying... Hell is too good for them. Although really, you shouldn't say that, not because they don't deserve hell, but because we need to trust God that the degree of their eternal punishment will fit their crime. My point is that your sense of outrage at their wicked behavior is justified. And let us not give everyone a pass 
due to their poor upbringing or their adverse social circumstances. Let's not beat about the bush. Some people are just manifestly evil and hell is their fitting eternal home. My sixth point concerns those who have followed other faiths or those who have never even heard of the existence of the Christian God or his son Jesus. The testimony of scripture is that man will be judged according to the light that he has received. Light both in terms of the external, the the natural creation, but also internal in terms of the human conscience. And as the opening chapters of the book of Romans makes clear, the majority of men evidently reject this double witness and rightly bring condemnation upon their souls. Of course, man is hardwired to worship something, be it a false god, hence false religion, or an ideology, or indeed self, hence atheism. All will give account for such. And as to whether any who have never heard the gospel can be spared eternal damnation, can we not trust that the God of all the earth will do right? Just as there were individuals who knew God even before the nation of Israel had received God's law, perhaps there are some who believe in the one true God and who will be saved on the basis of Christ's blood having been shed on their behalf. I don't know, but on such an issue, I am happy to let God be God rather than accuse him of unfairness and partiality. I am with the psalmist who proclaims he will judge the peoples with equity. Psalm 96 verse 10. And finally, in terms of defense, I would point out that God is often condemned for not preventing suffering and injustice, for not doing something about it. We know that the so-called problem of pain is probably the greatest single obstacle that people have to believing in a loving God. Yet at the same time, God is condemned when he does exercise judgment in condemning people to hell. Is it not unfair, if not illogical, to attack God for not acting to stop suffering and injustice while simultaneously denouncing him for imposing an eternal punishment on those who cause the suffering and injustice? Is there not a bit of having your cake and eating it? So we now come to the counter-offensive. How can this roadblock to faith be transformed into a signpost to faith? And here I want to suggest five points. Number one, it is only by the grace and mercy of God that any of us escape hell. We are all sinners, every single one of us here and outside, 
All of us deserve condemnation of one degree or another because of our sinful thoughts, our sinful motives, our sinful words, our sinful actions, and our sinful attitudes. Hell is our rightful destination. The fact that God accepts anyone into his presence, whether now in this life or into his eternal home, is actually an act of mercy. So let us then be careful of demanding of God that he gives us or gives others what we or they merit. For really, we're only inviting our and their damnation. Rather, we ought to thank God that he doesn't treat us as we deserve, but he invites us to receive forgiveness through repentance and acceptance of his son's death on our behalf. Number two, and this is a point that's repeated often in this series, salvation is not on the basis of good works. So this follows on from the previous point. We must kick into touch any underlying assumption that salvation is somehow a reward for good living. That come the day of judgment, God adds up your good deeds and your bad deeds. And if the good outweighs the bad, then he bids you to come into his eternal home. But if the bad outweighs the good, then he consigns you to hell. Salvation is never on that basis. Salvation is on the grounds of faith in Jesus Christ. How you react to his claims to be your saviour and your Lord. Do you acknowledge your personal sinfulness and accept that Jesus died the death that you deserve? Is he your personal saviour and king? That is what happens. That is what matters. And I say it respectfully. It does not matter how good a person you consider yourself to be. God will not admit you into his eternal home unless you have understood that you do not deserve salvation but are depending on divine mercy. Number three, man must bear his own responsibility for going to hell. C.S. Lewis famously said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Now, it would be foolish to claim that people actually want to go to a place of eternal torment. But the simple fact is, we know that many people simply do not want to know God. They have absolutely no desire whatsoever for any sort of meaningful relationship with God based upon worshipping and serving him. Rather, they want their own independence. They want to live life according to their own rules. And that, after all, is the essence of sin. 
independence from God's rule. And since the essence of hell is eternity without God, in one sense, when God banishes people from his eternal presence, he is simply honoring their choice. You didn't want me as part of your life now, so I will honor your choice eternally. And this bears a close relationship, a close similarity to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1. When on three occasions the Apostle says of men and women that God gave them over to their own sinful choice. Despite having the witness of creation, they preferred to do their own thing. They preferred to invent their own gods. They preferred to make up their own rules. And God granted them their choice. You see, God is not a dictator. God will even respect a man's right to reject him. So let's not blame God for sending to hell those who in this life have shown absolutely no interest in him, nor any love for his ways. Number four, God does not want to send people to hell. God is not some sort of vindictive, sadistic monster who delights in condemning people to eternal damnation. Rather, God's desire is that people repent and come to enjoy eternal life. That is a, a life of joyous fellowship with their maker. So I'm going to read to you now some verses of scripture. John 3 verse 16. You should all be familiar with this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 10 verse 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Both those verses were spoken by Jesus. Now listen to the apostle Paul. God our saviour who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4. And now the apostle Peter, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3 verse 9. I could add verses from the Old Testament, such as Ezekiel 18 verse 23. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their wicked ways and live when someone ends up in hell, it is not a cause for divine pleasure. Rather, there is sorrow over one who chose not to repent and to discover true life. And finally, number five, Jesus experienced hell so that we might not do so. Jesus experienced hell so that we might not do so. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That, of course, was Jesus' cry of dereliction from the cross. Why did he die 
such an excruciating and humiliating death at Calvary? Well, precisely so that you and I might not have to endure eternal punishment for our sin. He took ownership of our sin. He bore our guilt. He laid down his life for us. He endured his own hell. And may I suggest that his experience of hell will have been more intense than anyone else. He was separated from the Father for those dreadful three hours of darkness when God poured out his wrath upon him as he acted as our substitute. And anyone who trusts in him and accepts the value of his substitutionary death can know with absolute assurance that they will never themselves experience hell. Rather, they are heaven-bound. An eternity of glorious bliss awaits. The horror of hell is banished from their personal horizon, all due to God's gift of his precious son and his sin-bearing death on Calvary's cross. A God of love would never send people to hell. That is an untruth. However, a loving God has done everything he rightfully can do to avoid sending people to hell. Indeed, in the sacrificial death of Jesus, he has himself experienced hell so that we might never do so. It is then up to us as to whether we accept this gift of eternal life or whether we remain in our sin. We choose to remain in our sin and then suffer the eternal consequences. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.